Hi guys, this is Doug Fletcher. Welcome back to What's the Hazard? It's Friday, May 29th here in Omaha, Nebraska, 3 p.m. It's a beautiful afternoon. In fact, Pat, I think it's 5 p.m. somewhere in either Greenland or Brazil right now, man. So, That's right. Uh, <laughs> so it's well, 5 p.m. in my office. Five, in yeah, yeah, as soon as you get the hell out of here. That's right. 5 p.m. across the hall, oddly enough. <laughs> Is that like this, the, the prime meridian or something? This yeah, hallway right, right in the hallway. Anyway, oh my God, it is Friday afternoon. Um, and it's been a pretty good week. I hope everybody is doing well. Thanks for joining us. Um, just a quick update before I introduce my guest. I'm really excited about my guest today. We have a tremendous guest, and I've been looking forward to speaking with her. Um, for those of you that are not aware, OSHA has published two guidance documents. I think I mentioned this last week. Uh, they went into effect on May 26th. One is about uh, record-keeping uh, as, it, as it pertains to COVID cases. And one is kind of an overview of OSHA's COVID enforcement strategies uh, and how they foresee um, phasing back into normal enforcement practices going forward. And so if you've not had an opportunity to look at either of those documents, you can go to the OSHA website under the COVID tab, take a look at those. I think the only of the two, the one that's probably more pertinent is the record keeping guidelines uh, when you might have to record a work-related COVID um, case. Uh, the enforcement strategy may or may not be relevant. I mean, <clears throat> we'll just deal with it when they, if, they, if and when they show up. So um, you may want to take a look at it, but I think the uh, record keeping is probably more important for the time being. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is that I just saw an announcement from the World Health Organization this morning indicating that they are not recommending the use of face coverings for situations other than uh, healthcare practitioners who are dealing with uh, a suspected COVID case. And then um, if you are a caretaker, perhaps, for a high-risk individual or something, a situation like that, but for normal, healthy individuals like, I'm going to throw myself into that category just for the sake of this discussion, they're suggesting that you do not or should not be wearing a mask. And I'm now all of a sudden, I'm just in like this uh, turmoil. I don't know what to do. I just started wearing masks. And so um, I fought it for weeks. And then I just, I basically acquiesced. You know, we had a guest not too long ago, Dan Marburg, who was a COVID survivor. He'd gotten out of intensive care at Methodist Hospital after struggling with COVID. And, and he posed to me, you know, what harm could it do, Doug? You might as well just wear a mask. And I thought, well, that, that makes perfect sense. And so I've actually been wearing a mask, and now the World Health Organization comes out and says, don't wear a mask, and I've got to be honest, I'm confused. So uh, I would imagine I'm not the only one. Well, let's get to my guest. Uh, my guest today is Corey Sinek. Um, I can see her face. It's been a long time, Corey. Corey is uh, a friend of mine, a colleague, former colleague. We worked together at OSHA, the Omaha area office, for a number of years, and she has actually gone on to bigger and better things. Uh, she is, I'm going to describe you as the safety manager, uh, the VA Medical Center in San Francisco, California. Um, and I'll let you actually tell me what the proper title is and the location and things like that. But you are my first healthcare professional uh, on the show, Corey. So I'm very excited to, to talk about healthcare a little bit. Most of my guests have either been construction or industrial safety people. You know, a couple of uh, ergonomists, actually, which is near and dear to your heart, I know. But um, so, welcome. Um, I can see you. You are sitting outside in, in sunny San Francisco, enjoying a beverage, it appears. Um, I'm sure for, this, you know, for the sake <laughs> of your, your uh, boss who might be listening in at some point, that's probably just a, 
some kind it's of just coffee flesh, <laughs> coffee or some other some other bubbly carbonated refreshment of some sort. But it's great to see you. How you doing? Oh, it's nice to see you too, Fletch. Um, well, I'm I'm doing pretty well. It's I'm here in the East Bay area, okay. so um, I'm just across the bay from San Francisco. Okay. Rarely referred to as sunny San Francisco, just yeah, just rarely. so you know. Okay, so uh, that yeah, was from, yeah. yeah, but uh, it's the East Bay area is certainly under the impact of San Francisco in terms of how we're okay. responding to COVID, and it is. Uh, it's a busy time for healthcare. I'll it's been it a very busy couple of months. So I am technically the occupational safety and health program manager for okay. the Vizin here. So that's the uh, uh, veteran integrated network. Okay. Um, Would that be kind of like so, a regional office or something? If we yes, okay. yeah, it's like a re- it's like a regional office. Okay. So I have seven healthcare systems under oh my, my oversight. Nice. Um, and they each have their own set of demographics and their own culture. Sure. Um, we're all the VA, but uh, we're certainly all impacted in a different way um, by the location and the culture that we're in. I see. So I've got uh, Northern California, um, a couple of sites in Nevada and the Pacific Islands. Interesting. And so they're yeah. all, they all, are they all under different types of restrictions, state imposed, or yeah. is everything under whatever the VA has imposed on them? Well, it's a, it's a mix. So the VA itself has its own guidance in terms of what we're doing inside the healthcare setting. Um, but the public guidance varies dramatically Absolutely. from location to location. So I think San Francisco probably has one of the most restrictive or most aggressive approaches mm-hmm. uh, for containing COVID in the, in the public. Um, they're still officially in shelter in place, as am I. Okay. Um, I mean, so I am for shelter in place. It's a public health policy where uh, they don't want us leaving our homes except for essential business. And I they see. find that out pretty carefully as to what essential business means. So okay. I've been spending an awful lot of time from my, <laughs> from my home office. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I get out and about for groceries maybe every 10 days. Is it's that what a, they allow it's just a real experience. Oh, I'm sure it is. And I, you know, we um, <clears throat> here in Nebraska, we have never had a shelter in place, um, mandate, you know, that was kind of a voluntary thing. And, you know, I think for a few weeks, people kind of thought it was cute and they kind of complied and they tried to stay home and everybody made a little game out of it. You know, it was kind of fun. And you'd do the little, we would do these little driveway parties where people might come over and sit six feet away from you and we'd have a little chat or have a drink or something. Uh, I got to be honest with you. It's almost as if there is no virus at this point. I mean, it just looks like in large part, here, at least in this area, it's almost a return to business as usual. Now, you know, many of my clients are food processing um, and and other industries where they are still practicing social distancing. They have, you know, engineering controls in place. They're using PPE and other, you know, face coverings and things. But, you know, in those facilities, you can tell that they're still adhering to those guidelines. But out in the community, it is uh, really almost um scary how how people have regressed you know it's really weird i i think that's interesting um and i think we're seeing periods of that um we're we're seeing that in a lot of places certainly there are a lot of people in this area who are tired of being home and they are eager to be in the community but there's there's overall a pretty good compliance rate with the public health guidance. We're also required to, we're required to wear masks in public. It's Are an expectation. Mm-hmm. And in San Francisco, for example, you could in theory be cited for being in public and failing to wear a face covering. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So okay. it's, they're taking it very seriously. 
Um, and you would and, you could and, only be out of your self-imposed your your quarantine if you were doing one of those essential activities that you in, mentioned, right? Yes, and if you are performing one of those essential activities, like healthcare, for mm-hmm. example, the expectation is while you're in public, you are still wearing a face covering. Okay. Okay. So, and then it, once we get into the hospital, we have very specific protocols for what we expect. Okay. And so I know um, that you know the. Um, you know, UNMC uh, and other, yeah, uh, yeah you're one of, your alma mater, in fact. And, That's right. Uh, That's right. And a number of the other hospitals around here have really um, cut back on the elective um, uh, procedures and activities that they've conducted. They've they've kind of limited much of what they've done to COVID related issues, and and so many of the hospitals were at really low occupancy for quite a long time. I think they're starting to loosen that up a little bit, mm-hmm. realizing that there are a lot of other issues beside COVID that, that, that their patients need assistance with. But uh, so as far as the VA and the services that you guys are providing, have you changed what you guys have been delivering or has there, has there been a, just an emphasis on COVID or have you, has it been business as usual? Oh. No, absolutely. We've certainly gone through a fluctuation, much like uh, what you're describing with UNMC. Um, And that's not unexpected for healthcare, particularly in the United States. Most of our hospitals um, function at very high capacity on a regular basis. So um, when we started to see surges, uh, Mm -hmm. there was some genuine concern that we weren't going to have the bed capacity to meet those, uh, to meet those requirements or to care for that population. So um, almost every healthcare institution cut down private and public sector alike, cut down their elective procedures to start uh, focusing on making sure that we had surge capacity. Sure. uh, sure. Because uh, the, it's so complicated in the community, the dynamics, it's very difficult to plan for. Um, But in public health, we, we don't want to be underprepared. We'd Absolutely. much rather be overprepared. So sure. um, all of the VAs in Vision 21, so that's my vision, okay. um, did, uh, well, all of the VAs nationwide actually restricted all of their elective care and started uh, making room for surge, creating beds, identifying their proper engineering controls, and going through a very complicated process to make sure that if they were impacted by a regional outbreak, that they would be able to serve our population, mm-hmm. um, but also their there's been discussion about if we have to carry out what we call the fourth mission, which is provide health care to the people that aren't typically our patients, aren't typically veterans. So opening up our care right. services to the general public. I see. Um, Those would be- and so just now we're just starting to talk about what the new normal looks like. And some of our facilities are slowly reintroducing these um, elective procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're certainly stratifying them by risk because we, because we, delayed certain types of care, we want to make sure that those that might have the, the largest impact due to that delay are at the front of the line as we as we sure. continue to open up our services. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still have to be careful in terms of um, supply and demand is still fluctuating nationwide in terms of what's available. And I think everyone's still a little on edge for that. Mm-hmm. Overall, the VA has been well suited, I think, and very well prepared. Um, but we're all very aware of the impact of supply demand on supplies, particularly as I'm sure you're aware, PPE has been in the news quite a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, dramatically. So, I mean, that was really an issue here. And I can remember, gosh, was, were you with OSHA back in the 2008, nine timeframe? I joined, I, uh, I, I joined remember. OSHA in March of 2008. 2008. Okay. So was that right at the time of the, uh, at the H1N1, when um, I know that, for example, we have a 3M, a respirator manufacturing facility in Valley, Nebraska, which is just outside of Omaha, and they were 
running 24-7 at the time during H1N1 and couldn't keep up with the demand. And so I'm sure that, uh, you know, you would have thought, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure that they they learned from those um, stresses on the, on the system and they probably made um, contingencies for that. But obviously... Uh, they were the system was overwhelmed again, it appears, and so that you know that the demand certainly exceeded the supply once again, and so I know that was kind of a kind of a tense time trying to you know it it has been an intense time, and there's uh, it's been very very challenging. I think mm-hmm. it introduces one of those important ideas where we it wasn't just healthcare; it was you know trying to get a hold of those masks. So a lot of our healthcare systems, many particularly within the VA, had access to caches that mm-hmm. have been put together in preparation for outbreaks. Um, but we also see an increase usage across the healthcare system. So we're burning through them a lot faster oh, than um, we would have normally. Um, and then when you saw that huge uh, fluctuation in the overall supply and demand in terms of PPE, it made everyone very nervous about sure. what that was going to look like because it's been a it's a it's a global demand. Mm-hmm. Ev- everyone's wanting them about the same time. Right, uh, right. So it's That's been a, it's been challenging. It's incredible. And there's the difference between where we where we really want to focus on putting, for example, high level PPE uh, versus other other alternatives where we mm-hmm. can introduce distancing and barriers and engineering controls all of you know when we work through the hierarchy but in a pandemic particularly when ppe is frequently in the media there's a it certainly amplifies the perception of when and when we want that ppe and Mm -hmm. so everyone's on edge and um an awful lot of people were kind of balancing in in a balancing act between addressing um probable exposure paths and perceived exposure paths. Mm-hmm. So it, it does make it difficult for our sites as they try to kind of work in that that middle ground. Because per, as you're well aware, perceived safety is an aspect of safety. Yeah, no it's, doubt. So we certainly had, um, we have a lot of learning opportunities as we've moved through this process on how to manage um, things like that. Right. And so interestingly, I guess I should tell the audience that um, that uh, we spent a few years, if not a number of years, working together at OSHA here in Omaha. Uh, you're yeah. in, you are an industrial hygienist, a certified industrial hygienist. Uh, I'm an industrial hygienist by practice for the most part. And so we worked together on, on industrial hygiene-related issues and just general OSHA things. And you're also uh, an MPH. Is that true? You, oh, that's you got your, true. That's you, true. You, you UNMC. A, you got your MPH through UNMC. Um, mutual friends of ours, Dr. Stentz and other, and other faculty down there. And um, so this is probably very interesting to you, I would assume, even though it can be very emotional and stressful based on the demands that on you as a, as a VA employee. But I mean, as a, you know, as an industrial hygienist, as a healthcare, a, a public health professional, it's got to be fascinating to just kind of watch this whole thing uh, as it evolves. And it, It's been very fascinating for, for a number of reasons. Very stressful, um, mm-hmm. absolutely. But um, I had the opportunity to work with a number of the folks at the biocontainment unit as I completed my master's. Um, and that uh, and, you know, Terry Stentz was my my mentor in getting through that program. Mm-hmm. He certainly facilitated um, getting me into the program and making sure I finished. So I am I am grateful <laughs> to Terry right. Stentz for that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. He was a he was an incredible advocate. But working with the biocontainment unit, you know, the last project that I worked on with them um, for my my capstone 
um, involved actually training the national um, medical disaster response team. So those are going to be healthcare employees um, in the uh, in the civil sector, mm-hmm. the, uh, the private sector, who support public responses I to. See high consequence infections. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was really remarkable to watch how effectively UNMC had taken these these ideas, but then actually turned them into ways that can be operationalized in a variety of environments. Wow. Um, And that has proved to be incredibly beneficial for me as I've been kind of moving through this this period of time since probably since about February for me here mm-hmm. in looking at how we're going to manage and respond to COVID from an occupational safety and occupational health standpoint. And um, so I'm incredibly grateful for that experience. Wow, it yeah, could not well, have been more valuable. Yeah, very <laughs> fortuitous. And I'm sure that the VA was equally uh, grateful that you had that experience. I'm sure they were like, oh my gosh, we made the right hire. That's fantastic. <laughs> I hope that's what they're thinking. <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, I'm I sure that's most fantastic. Of the time, most of the time. Oh, that's really interesting. I, you know, I try to step back and just look at it uh, more as a safety and health professional, and uh, just you know think how really interesting it is. And uh, you know, I've I've seen some really incredible response from a number of my clients and just a number of other uh, employers here in the in the Midwest in the Nebraska area. They've done some incredible things in response and very very um, innovative. You know, very creative. Yeah. Um, I've just been really, it's a marvel to watch them. Some, you know, the vast majority of the employers that I work with are doing their best to protect their employees. I'm I'm sure there are some employers that really haven't done anything in particular to address COVID transmission or those kind of things, but the vast majority have. um, And it's been very impressive to watch. And I'm just, I'm just really proud of them. You know, they're doing some remarkable things and, um, you know, I learned so much from just hearing about, you know, their different uh, efforts and, you know, the activities that they're that they're going through and things like that. It's really it really is uh, fascinating, you know, when you can remove it's yourself. Fascinating. From it. And it's it interesting to watch all of the pieces come together and the different viewpoints um, on, on how things should be done. And a lot of safety is. Safety is certainly a big word in healthcare, but depending on how you talk to you, usually the focus of safety um, we often talk about patient safety in mm-hmm, healthcare mm-hmm, all the sure. time. And so there's certainly a variety of perceptions as we walk through safety. But certainly COVID has um, introduced a time where everyone is acutely aware of occupational safety. Right, right. Um, and, and, so, and it's not to say it isn't always present, but it's certainly right. in a healthcare institute. Safety is is kind of a different different. No doubt. It's different than what we see in industrial settings, for sure. Well, and I'm sure it is. Uh, patients probably are the first priority, at least when, when you think of safety as it relates to a healthcare setting like yours. You are absolutely. You, you naturally gravitate to the, uh, the patient's safety. but uh, And so what is your responsibility? Does that include patient safety, employee safety, public safety? All of those things are under that <laughs> so- one? I oversee the occupational safety so okay. and occupational health in okay. terms of program oversight. So um, I there's a number of issues that where there's a lot of collaborative effort on, for example, patient safety. Mm-hmm. Um, one that comes to mind is always the ergonomics, the safe mm. patient handling. Sure. So we want to optimize the safety of the patient as well as optimize the safety of our staff who are providing that care. Um, and we, we really kind of, there's a lot of places where we cross over with patient safety. So another area would be pharmaceuticals. Where oh, sure. If you go into the pharmacy and you ask them to talk about safety, they'll start talking about drugs that look like, sound like, 
um, the possibility of a mix-up or right. drugs that uh, um, have particularly uh, devastating consequences if not administered appropriately. And so they start running through safety in that sure. in that vein. And then sometimes it's a little bit difficult to transition them back to talking about their potential safety as they, for example, handle those pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. and what chronic subtherapeutic exposures might be possible and how to mitigate those. Those are right. topics that, you know, in healthcare, we have an awful lot of people who are caregivers. I mean, they're drawn to caregiving. Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. in that nature, in that vein, it's it's not uncommon for that personality type to be willing to put someone else's safety above their own. Of course, yeah. And so it's, a, it's sometimes a challenge to get them to refocus on the initiatives that apply to occupational safety. I'm sure it is. Wow. But I think whenever we can tie it into like overall the environment of care and, and showing how it ties into ensuring the safety of the patient as well, we have our um, most effective processes in that when we have that level of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. to manage. That's... that's um incredibly diverse. And you're right, that's a lot more than we would probably see in an industrial and certainly a construction setting, having to manage all those different perceptions of safety and what what our responsibilities would be. That's uh, incredible. So on the occupational safety side, I typically have, um, we typically see emergency management, mm-hmm. um, fire safety, general safety. So a lot of the OSHA initiatives. Um, and then we also have the industrial hygiene course, and the environmental programs, the mm. EPA-based compliance as well. So those, oh, yeah. um, thankfully, is that in I your have, shop? <laughs> is, is environmental thankfully, in your shop? the environmental side, I have a colleague who manages all of the environmental oh, um, aspects, God. and I am so grateful for that because that is a totally different ballgame um, when you get into the details. But mm. um, certainly a lot of similarities when we talk about industrial hygiene you know you have a toxin you either don't want it to impact the human population or you don't want it to impact the environment so there's Mm -hmm. some overlap but certainly a different set of regulations altogether right right well interesting okay so this is episode number 30 of what's the hazard we've been doing this now for about seven months um and uh, i need to thank pat and jill here at parkville media for helping me with this this was um this has been kind of a, a, a dream of mine for a number of years to just get safety professionals together. And basically, I just get to listen to, you know, good safety professionals talk about what they do. Um, it's an incredibly enjoyable for me. But uh, episode number 30, we're going to start introducing some new segments into the podcast because it's kind of a diverse audience. Uh, most of the listeners are, well, you know, I think they have a connection to the safety, occupational safety and health world. It, it kind of started out as a as a program specifically for safety and health practitioners, but I think it also applies to contractors and small business people who may not have the luxury of having a a safety professional on staff. They have those responsibilities themselves. And so, but you know, it's it's a very diverse audience. And so um, providing them the information that they need is incredibly challenging, you know, to try to make sure that we are getting them what they need in order to do those jobs more effectively. So we are adding a segment to the program, and we're going to call this basically the OSHA coffee break. And I think uh, that's appropriate on a number of levels. I think caffeine is going to be uh, definitely required in order to get. And you're caffeinating, I see, uh, and and I am as well. I I am caffeinating as as we speak. And so, but the OSHA coffee break, and uh, and you are the first victim of the OSHA coffee break segment is really oh, intended all right, to. Let's, let's see what happens. Well, let's. So yeah. So tell me. Um, I know that that you are responsible from a safety and health standpoint for much more than just OSHA compliance, but uh, federal agencies are required to comply with OSHA regulations. And 
I know that we used to do yes, we, we used to do inspections of federal agencies when you and I were both with OSHA. Mm-hmm. That might be TSA or it might be the VA or it might be, you know, a USDA or some other uh, federal organization. And so if we, t- if we look just at OSHA and, and, you know, where OSHA fits into your responsibilities, what, what would you say that the VA does well with regard to OSHA compliance or uh, as far as addressing OSHA regulatory requirements? I mean, what are you particularly good at? I, well, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. And I thought a little bit about that question as you had kind of given me a heads up about our coffee <laughs> Of course, break. right. Um, and I, I immediately got stuck because each of our hospitals, um, while they're under the overarching VA system, um, when I, I started kind of in the weeds thinking about specific regulations and how we do with that particular program and how well it's implemented. But the truth of it is the VA does have a, a pretty solid overarching approach to maintaining OSHA compliance. One of my requirements in my role as the VISN Occupational Safety and Health Program Manager is to audit each of the sites at least one time specifically to validate or um to evaluate their compliance with OSHA standards. Mm -hmm. And they want that assessment done to be very specific to OSHA compliance. So it doesn't include necessarily joint commission or safe patient handling or a number of the other accreditation institutes, Mm -hmm. CAP and CARF, that that we're um, required to meet a number, a variety of regulations. So in that way, the VA has certainly built in a process that ensures we periodically check compliance Mm -hmm. and that we bring that information to the leadership of each site and also to the regional level and then uh, to understand how we're doing. And then that information is all rolled up to nationals so they can try and determine where we might have some vulnerabilities. So I think what the VA does really well is is putting that process in place. Oh, nice. Uh, Because when you go to each hospital, we might, we find kind of a variety of approaches. Mm -hmm. um, And there's, there's a number of things that dictate how well they will be or how effective they'll be at any given standard. Sure. um, Sure. We, we see a variety across the board there, um, particularly as you get into the details of any given standard. Um, And you're doing these audits annually, you said? At least annually. Each location, Sometimes annually? Each location, comprehensive at a minimum. OSHA compliance, at okay. minimum. And so I'll typically spend at least a week at the hospital auditing just for OSHA compliance. So l- let me get this straight. So you have how many locations in the Pacific Islands? It's about to get a Yes, yes. <laughs> so- uh, we have a number of locations. I That's that's correct, Fletch. I am required oh, to go to Hawaii stop. for at least one week a year. At least. Really? Um, we also have uh, sites in Guam mm-hmm. uh, as well. And we have a site in the Philippines um, and American Samoa. Wow. Well, I thank know. you for your service. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Fletch. You have always been a giver. And I think we, you know. No, Thank that's fantastic. You. I, I mean, someone would notice. Hey, I, I, and I know that it's not a vacation. I know how, you know, I know what those audits are probably like, and they're incredibly time consuming and detailed. And so it's not all just fun and games at the beach, but. Oh, I, it sure isn't. I have to say, <laughs> I, I've been to Hawaii once uh, and it was to do an audit. And I can tell you an awful lot about what the inside of that hospital yeah, looks like. No doubt. As far as uh, everything else on the island, um, I really had a, didn't get an opportunity to view it properly, but uh, I hope to rectify that in the future. At some point, absolutely. So let me ask you this. Did your time with OSHA benefit you as far as conducting those audits, those physical audits Uh, of those facilities? Absolutely. Um, So there was a good outcome. There was something good to come from that. Oh gosh. The learning curve at OSHA, that was, that was a challenge for me, Fletch. Um, All of us. Certainly. 
yeah, it was uh, that first year. I have a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. It's very, um, but, very demanding. Uh, that that uh, opportunity to really see how OSHA functions, how the audits are done, or the inspections as we call them, um, and how they're managed in terms of uh, I, identifying the severity and probability of a citation, and then the opportunities for the informal conference, I think has really given me um, an incredible skill set that I can mm-hmm. share with the VA uh, to be able to pinpoint what, uh, for example, OSHA keys in on absolutely. quickly oh, absolutely. and help them mitigate some of those most, more obvious violations that uh, people can fall fall prey to. And uh, certainly given me an opportunity to be a more effective negotiator for informal conference of course. and to really understand um, whether the citation that's been issued meets all the criteria to the gr- degree that it should. Right. I mean, um, the, the prima facie... The burden is still the same for a federal agency, even though there won't be yeah. monetary penalties necessarily. That's uh, correct. They're still held to the same standard for issuing a citation. And so, yeah, having some insights into what that actually means would be incredibly useful. It's, it's been very helpful. Oh, good for you. Um, That's awesome. And one of the, the one of the things they, they taught me right off the bat is first, before you before you get into the standard, check the scope. Mm-hmm. Does it apply? No doubt. And, uh, uh, there's still a number of times where uh, that has served served me well, and that a citation has maybe been issued that wasn't uh, that it, we didn't fall into the scope of that mm-hmm. citation with the way that it was issued. So that has made me certainly a more effective negotiator. That, I'm grateful for that insight. Yeah, that's great advice, and I think that it is takes a, a lot of common. Practice. And I and I think it takes a lot of practice for the OSHA compliance staff as well to mm. to read into those. Uh, the you know the scope and application portion of those regulations and to know whether or not the particular I mean I can't tell you how many times you would read up into the paragraph and you know from the subparagraph and realize well this this doesn't apply to the situation we're looking at even though the the language seems to direct you to that hazard or that deficiency you know it's not intended for that particular application and uh, I think that's common and i'm sure that there have a lot of a lot of citations have been issued and perhaps even accepted you know in mm-hmm. incorrectly for that reason so good good i good think that's you. quite possible yeah, yeah. not in my visit <laughs> no no of not anymore not. no and that's i we have a we have a great working relationship with osha here and we it is important for me to maintain um you know a positive working relationship with them um but i also vividly remember my first year at osha and, and mm. there were I'm sure I made those mistakes well, we uh, and did. I'm lucky yeah. that there were a number of people in the office like you Fletch mm-hmm. that helped coach me through understanding when something applied and when it did not. Um, because certainly those, that first year there was, there were a lot of guessing. There was a lot of guessing on my yeah. part as oh. to when it applied. Well, and we have a mutual colleague and friend, uh, Seth Burmeister, who is, um, he's not your counterpart because he's not with the Vizen. He's actually at the VA medical center here in Omaha so he would be the, yes. the site safety manager, I would assume, which is different yes, than your yes. role. But, mm-hmm. you know, he was kind of a mentor to both of us at some point during our careers. And, um, yeah, I mean, I same thing. I mean, he taught me many of those things. And usually what Seth would do, would he would he would ask me to accompany him on a on a, an inspection. And then I would do the write-up, of course, while he, he, he would get <laughs> the credit right. for the inspection. Yeah. I'd do the write-up. And then he would take a red pen. I mean, he was just like my mother take a red pen and go through and then, it, you know, line through all of my citations and no, 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 you know, and then, um, but his, you know, his, he, he was always asking similar questions. It was, you know, show me how this applies to this situation, you know, show me in the regulation where it indicates that this, this verbiage applies to this situation. And his other, his other question 
was the basis for this entire podcast. He used to ask me all the time, well, what's the hazard? You know, uh, I mean, he's still, it's still his go-to line, Fletch. What's the I hazard? Mean, uh, I worked with, Seth was my boss at, uh, at NWI, um, mm-hmm. and I was the industrial hygienist there. And, you know, whenever we would have an opportunity to discuss a, potentially an OSHA complaint or an inspection, he'd just come back to, what's the hazard? Right. You know, I just make him tell you, Corey, what's the hazard? And, you know, that is a question that, that should be on the forefront of every safety professional's mind all the time. I mean, I, we get a little bit bogged down in the verbiage sometimes and the regulations, and it ultimately boils down to what is the hazard. And so, I mean, that's literally why I named the podcast what, we, what I did, because, you know, it's not, I don't want to go so far as to say it's a tribute to Seth, because that might be... <laughs> overstating his importance well, in my life, but no, I'm teasing, but you know, I think uh, with that, you should require him to uh, <laughs> uh, get you a theme song. You know, exactly. which is, side gig is a musician. That's not What's a bad idea. We need a, we need a tune that we can play okay. right now. The introduction is Brahms. I don't know if you've actually, actually listened to the podcast, but the intro music. I actually liked it. Yeah. Oh, I liked did, your pick. The, well, that was from my son. My son is a huge Brahms fan. And so we've, we found one that wasn't copyrighted or at least I wouldn't get in trouble for playing. So, <laughs> but I wouldn't mind maybe alternating with something from, uh, what was his band called? The Burmeisters or something. I forget what they. I've certainly. <laughs> yeah. Bluesmeisters. <laughs> Lucky for like him. That. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Yeah. But yeah. that's a great suggestion. Well, I think that's interesting because I think you're right. When I asked what do you do well with regard to OSHA regulations? Um, it's more of a system issue for the VA. You have a what you believe to be a, an effective auditing system to ensure that on those indiv- at those individual sites they are at least adhering to the requirements yeah. of the regulations in some fashion because they probably all do implement them somewhat differently, and that's probably appropriate, you know, frankly. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's the system that really serves us well. Um, and nice. we, we have the opportunity to um, consistently draw attention back to safety mm-hmm. with these annual audits where we engage with site leadership and regional leadership to talk about how safe, what, what, um, what the safety culture looks like at any given site right. and where they might have some really strong practices and where they still have um, some potential for some vulnerabilities. So I think requiring that to be a focal point every year um, re- serves us well to make sure that some of those standards that don't always get all the attention that they need um, mm-hmm. are at least uh, addressed annually. Uh-huh. I like that. Yeah, I think that would be uh, uh, a valuable uh, take-home message for just for any industrial facility or even construction company uh, to do to develop some type of a system for periodic, regular audits to make sure that they are at least addressing those things that they're not allowing things to slip through the cracks. And I think having someone come in that doesn't work at the site is extremely beneficial because having been the person that works at a hospital and is working to implement those uh, standards, um, we start, our lens kind of narrows to Mm -hmm. the thing that we're very focused on. And sometimes it's hard to see all of the other things that are happening. So I Mm -hmm. think having that external person um, makes a big difference. Absolutely. Well, that makes you, you, you are the actually the ideal candidate for that. So you have OSHA experience as a compliance officer, you have site experience with the VA medical center here in Omaha. And now you're working for the vision in was it 21 or 22? You said 21, 21. And so that makes you the perfect person to do that. Frankly. I mean, I mean, and I'm not saying that, I mean, 
literally, that skill set is incredibly valuable, having had those experiences to go in there and do those audits, as you said. As an outsider, so you have familiarity with what the VA does and their programs, and you have familiarity with the sites and with OSHA inspections. My God, you should be... Is there like a president of the VA or something? That, is, is that the yes, next step? There, well, there is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it really does. The, that oper- the work I did with OSHA um, and my time working for Seth at the, the VA in Nebraska, at Nebraska Western Iowa has been incredibly valuable. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, to be able to do this job, I, I think, well. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to see, sure. I think I have a certain um, capability of seeing some of those vulnerabilities having been mm-hmm. the person attempting to correct those vulnerabilities mm-hmm. before. So well, really me, got an idea for well, it. I didn't give you a heads up on this question, but let, oh, let, me, good. let me pose it anyway. Is it important to be in compliance? I mean, uh, from, a um, VA, from the VA standpoint? Well, I'm obligated to say absolutely. Mm-hmm, um, and I, I do generally, I do genuinely believe that because we are a federal agency, we have, um, we should be going above and beyond whenever it comes at, at the very minimum, we need to be meeting federal compliance right. because we are a federal entity. I, I do believe that. Okay. I, um, I would agree. But uh, is there some I value then I, in the process of being compliant? Maybe that's a better question. I think it's, I think there's a value in the process that compliance kind of mandates for any given facility. I think that's really where we get our, the bang where we really get the opportunity to be successful mm-hmm. is that that process introduces an opportunity for us to do an overall risk assessment. Right. Um, so typically when I'm at a site and I'm doing an audit, of course, I look for the onesies, twosies, the low hanging fruits, mm-hmm. the, you know, the bench grinder and the machine <laughs> guarding, you know, the drill. Right. Um, and, and I keep an eye out for those things because they do introduce a certain amount of risk. But when I'm doing, when I'm going through the compliance checks, I'm also looking for where we have a number of things coming together um, where we have a number of vulnerabilities that are starting to overlap either in a department or a location or within the same scope or the same standard. Mm-hmm. So if I see multiple uh, vulnerabilities or uh, um, potential violations in under one standard, then it, then I can start to go back and try to understand why that's occurring mm-hmm. because that's where I think our real risk occurs in terms of injury mm-hmm. um, or an adverse impact on the environment of care. So for me, when I think about the risk, the overall risk, I'm really looking for those relationships between risks. We all know that, you know, it just takes, it's that one moment in time where two or three things come together at that one moment. And that's where we have a pretty serious consequence. And so I suppose that's always in the back of my mind as I'm doing the audits. I'm absolutely obligated to be going through the OSHA standards and validating our compliance with those standards. Um, but what I'm really looking at is what's behind those standards. Mm-hmm. Why Why are we doing these things well? And do we have places where a number of these things are coming together that cr- contribute to a real risk, right. like a tangible risk, um, other than the absence of compliance? That's interesting. Let me, let me see if I understand what you're saying. So, and I think I agree with you. Uh, you're so much smarter than me. I rarely understand what you're saying. <laughs> but I think that um, the onesies, I would agree, those onesies and twosies, may just they, they they may just be an aberration you may have just missed it or whatever the, i mean it may not be a reflection on your program necessarily if if they are so obvious that they should be caught and we're not finding them that that may be some that may be a deficiency in the way that we're performing our audits or it could be mm-hmm. just a training issue perhaps but when you start to see 
uh, a number of instances that are related to the same uh, concept or same regulation, there may very well be some systemic issue that we need to address. And so those are really critically important. Um, They may drive us to um, modify our training somehow or modify the process, frankly. So am I on the right page there? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's where we want to look at the process as to what's actually, why is that vulnerability occurring mm-hmm. and how far ahead of it can we get to, to mitigate it? Yeah. Um, so in compliance, it's easy to, you know, write the report, have them check the box and fix the one thing. Um, but when we see a series of things, what I'm really um, encouraging the sites and the hospitals to look at is why are all of these things coming together? Is mm-hmm. it, is it a, you know, it's one thing if I find for example, a relocatable power tab, you mm-hmm. know, with the number of things plugged in here or there. But if I start to see lots of relocatable power tabs mm-hmm. or power strips, as we call them, right. um, with every, welders with the, and refrigerators, you know, plugged with into. The, <laughs> the toaster and the coffee pot and the Keurig and they, right. you know, all lined up. And then, and then I see that maybe we have electrical panels that um, are being blocked because they're in a place where people want to leave things. Or if I start to see um, maybe some excessive use of flexible quartz, when I start to see all of those things come together, mm-hmm. the next thing I look at is, well, what does our electrical safety program look like? And I'm right. going to start going through that much more carefully because there are a number of people that should be catching those. Um, certainly that we want the department to be mindful. But when we start to see a lot of them come together in the same time and space, then I wonder if maybe we've been diverted to a different risk. And so we're looking at something else more closely and we've kind of lost sight of the potential issues that come with electricity and, and not managing it in a safe way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, and I think that it would benefit uh, the listeners, you know, the, the safety practitioners, the, the contractors, the small business people to understand that, that, that um, when you, you are looking for those recurrences or those, um, you know, that breakdown in our system, that these things are somehow managing to manifest themselves over and over again. We need to kind of drill down into that. I was always a little bit, um, not disappointed, but OSHA's mantra used to be find it and fix it, you know. And uh, that, that sounds nice. You know, OSHA was really good at, mm-hmm. you know, these little phrases and buzz, you know, buzzwords and things. But... If you just find it and fix it, I think you have missed the step, you know, that, that you're, that you're alluding to, you know, determine why these are occurring, you know, Mm -hmm. fixing it is great, but if we don't look a little more closely at why they continue to occur or recur, we're just going to continue to find them and fix them. And I think we need to, you know, there needs to be another step, you know, that identification, whether it's a behavioral issue, a training issue, a, some type of a process issue. But yeah, finding it and fixing it is great, but let's, let's determine what we can do to try to reduce the likelihood of that occurring again. Yeah. I think something that's uh, really important in healthcare is getting all the stakeholders involved. So for example, safety can go through the hospital and identify these vulnerabilities over and over. Um, Things that are um, simple, like uh, it's, it's not uncommon to walk through a hospital and see a hospital bed that's been moved to the corridor. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it, that could be there for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they're changing out a room. Perhaps that bed needs to be um, go through an inspection before it can be returned to service. Perhaps they're moving it to a different location. Um, and I could write them up if it's an obstruction to the corridor um, or I could walk through the facility and see how often I'm seeing that. And mm-hmm. then maybe what we have is really more of a space issue or a process issue in terms of are we not spreading out these inspections sure. adequately enough or why, why does it why does it keep happening? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I just talk to our safety staff about that, that isn't 
they're, they're not the person putting the bed in the corridor. Sure. And the person that's moving the bed into the corridor, if they don't anticipate or understand why that can relate to a risk downstream, um, what they're dealing with is a very immediate issue, whether it's turning over a room or trying to manage space or trying to manage equipment. They have a very specific priority and it's always patient care of and course. healthcare, which is what, you know, that is the highest priority. Right. And so as they're thinking about that, sometimes it results in behaviors or changes that then take us out of compliance for certain things. Um, but if we don't get to the root of it and the stakeholders aren't all engaged where everyone feels responsible for making sure that that is addressed, then I should expect to see it on my next tour through the mm -hmm. facility. No doubt. And that's that's typically what we see. And the, the safety departments and the healthcare systems are I'm very aware very aware. And we all um, develop our relationships with our counterparts to, to engage in ways that are proactive. But um, it's just like with any industry, there's a number of competing interests. Right. So making sure that safety, that those aspects stay at the, the top of the list can sometimes be challenging. No doubt. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting comment. You're right. And I think, again, that, that applies to construction, to industrial work settings, you know, um, there are a number of competing interests and uh, production, quality, safety, as we've just, you know, all of those different things. And so those things are probably occurring for a reason. You know, maybe the production mm -hmm. folks are doing something for a reason. And we as safety professionals are like, oh, my God, this is outrageous. How can you continue to do this without really understanding why they find it necessary? And as you said, if, if your focus is patient care, then you may your perception is going to be different than the the occupational safety person. You they know. are focused on safety. So, you right? know, yeah. But when you, when you get into Absolutely. a conversation with them about what that means, um, we're not always speaking the same language and we certainly don't always right. have the same uh, things in mind when right. we're talking about safety. Not that, I mean, it's a very broad spectrum in the healthcare field. Right. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. I, and I'll bet your approach to that, you know, you were always a very, um, you know, calm, rational, I mean, uh, you know, and I would assume that that, that demeanor, plays very well in a healthcare setting if you are, you know, if you are working with, you know, these other groups toward kind of a resolution to these things mm -hmm. that, you know, that heavy handed police safety approach probably would not play well in the healthcare world. So I'm sure. Oh, that, you know, uh, I, I did transition right from OSHA <laughs> to the VA. Oh, and I tell you what, Fletch, I learned some things that first year uh, because I, I came into the environment thinking, well, Okay, so I've identified this standard and this potential vulnerability where we're not always meeting the mark, so fix it, <laughs> right? right? It was right. the find it, fix it attitude. Yep. And uh, I was shocked that that was not enough to bring <laughs> right. it to resolution. I'm sure it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and Seth was very patient with me as I worked out on those first couple of months that, uh, yeah. that there were a number of things that had to be done to really engage all of the appropriate stakeholders. Well, and the absence of compliance was not <laughs> right. necessarily the driving force behind the behavior. Right. Well, and, and you, you and I both know that he had to learn it the hard way too. So let's not, let's not kid ourselves. Oh, I think we all do, right? He it's came, to, he came to that understanding with a lot of bumps and bruises as well. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, that yeah. it's really fascinating. And, you know, we're only, we're limited to about, you know, three, four hours on these podcasts. Oh, so, good, good. Um, I, I'm going to throw out a statement to you. This is something else that I've been thinking about that I think would be interesting to listeners. If I said to you, I can't live without, uh, in the context of safety, of course, I mean, you know, um, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, maker's mark or whatever the case might be. 
I, if I said I can't live without, is there something that you utilize routinely that is of just tremendous value to you as a safety professional, uh, a website or a tool or a resource or something that you use? I, if I were to ask myself that question, um, I would say duct tape, you know, as, it an, fixes indus- everything. as an industrial hygienist. <laughs> I've got to be honest, I'm still hanging pumps. You know, I know you're not hanging pumps anymore. I'm still out there hanging pumps and dosimeters and things. And without duct tape, I could not perform half of the, you know, the sampling events that I conduct. I mean, it it seems crazy to say that, but I carry a backpack when I do sampling. It's got all my tools in it and it's got, you know, my little screwdrivers and all of those things, extra batteries, what have you, and a roll of duct tape. Um, If I got pulled over by the police, I'd probably be, you know... I'd be brought in as some serial killer suspect or something, but you know, I mean, uh, it's critical. And so I, I don't go anywhere without it professionally at this point. And let's make it clear. I'm talking about professionally, but is there anything that you have found that has been of great uh, value to you? Well, I would say the TLV handbook when I was oh, the yeah, yeah. industrial hygienist mm-hmm. at the uh, NWI, that was so helpful. Are you talking about uh, that ACGIH? That little, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The TLV handbook, because um, I would often try to not just achieve OSHA compliance, but look at all of the other uh, entities that indicate what potential exposures there might be, and then try to get it as low as reasonably possible, of Mm -hmm. course. But with with the TLV in mind, I found that to be very helpful. And uh, walking through healthcare, I find a tissue to be incredibly helpful. And Seth actually (laughs) pointed that one out to me. Seems so simple. It's the the tissue. But in healthcare, we're very preoccupied with room pressures Mm -hmm. and relative room pressures. So when we talk about biohazards, we have spaces that are dirty Mm -hmm. and we have spaces that are clean. And then we have spaces that are sterile. Mm -hmm. And so there's probably when it comes to looking at some of those, one of the most fundamental things that we need to look at is which way is the air going? Like, wow. is my pot, is my dirty room negative air or is my mm-hmm. OR positive pressure? We need to check. And that tissue uh, was a really effective way to do a quick spot check to see if one of some of the problems we might be having is related to the room pressure. That is brilliant. So that's, that's regulated from the hoods to the research labs, to the medical laboratory, all the way down to, you know, where we store our waste products. That is incredible. So, so, wow. So, oh my God, this is horrible. So I know. Seth taught you that? I know. Can you believe it? Oh. I had the best equipment too. I just had, I had incredible, like I'd have the TSI yeah. monitors and I, I found those to be very useful. Um, and I love to go out and actually get the numbers. But right. when I was doing a quick spot chat, just walking through a hospital at any given time, the tissue was a quick way to check. Also indoor air quality complaints. Mm-hmm. Fastest way to get to the root of that. I can almost... Uh, in many of these older buildings is, is the exhaust functional? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, is the air moving out of the room? Are we getting any turnover? And the tissue right. tells you quickly if what your underlying issue is going to be, if it's going to be ventilation. And I would say 99% of indoor air quality complaints that I've investigated either as a contractor uh, inside the healthcare system, or even even with OSHA with the complaints, it always comes down to they're not getting enough air exchange. Mm-hmm. So either the um, makeup air is inadequate, or the exchange is inadequate. We're not yep. getting enough air changes. Yep, uh, odors will build up. Uh, carbon dioxide builds up. People become grumpy. This is why I had things. you on. The, this is fantastic. I, you know, a tissue. Yeah, I, and I mean, 
obviously in healthcare, you can't really smoke these rooms. I mean, I'm sure you can't be blowing. Oh, a- no, that stresses people out very quickly. <laughs> I'm sure it does. So, I mean, that's what I would typically do in an industrial setting. Yeah. I can smoke those things all the time, hoods or whatever, and, yeah. and, and gauge airflow and those types of things. But probably in the healthcare setting, they don't like to see a bunch of irritant smoke blowing into the room. Or- right. Yeah. It makes people very nervous. I love um, it, Corey. So, that's, uh, that's fantastic. It was a, it's a good, good spot check. I am going to put, we'll take it a lot further. I'm going to put it. I've got a box of tissues right over here that I'm going to steal from Pat <laughs> on my way out the door. That's a fantastic <laughs> idea. Perfect. Brilliant. Well, let's, let's conclude with, um, segment number three of the new, uh, what's the hazard format. Um, my mentor. Okay. One of the, I mean, one of the reasons I started this podcast was to provide some, level of maybe electronic mentorship to people that might have the luxury, they may not have the luxury of working with someone who can teach them. Uh, you and I both have had that luxury and I, you know, mm-hmm. I've had a number of incredible mentors over the years that have, and I continue to have mentors, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, the tissue thing, I'm going to count that as a mentoring session, frankly, but, um, I just wanted to ask you, do you want to give a shout out or just mention any of your mentors professionally? I mean, I know there are others, of but course. professionally mentors that might have uh, really had an impact on your professional development. Um, I, I thought about that a bit and there were a number of people that came to mind, but I have, I would have to say hands down, it was a uh, Phil Pasali. Oh. I, I still ask, I still ask Phil questions. Do you? Um, and I think uh, while he was amused So and why don't you describe who Phil Pasali Phil Pasali, uh, Phil is, Pasali is a compliance officer for the Omaha area <laughs> office. He's an industrial hygienist. Right. Um, and I think he has probably forgotten more about industrial hygiene than I have yet to learn. Um, he's very, very savvy. Yes, uh, he is. Uh, very sharp um, and an excellent sense of humor. Yeah. So, but he's, he's a very skilled compliance officer and he, um, he was, and you're, I, I was very agree. lucky that he was willing to mentor me in terms of really starting to understand industrial hygiene but also in, understand industrial hygiene in a compliance in the scope mm-hmm. of compliance. Right. Um, um, from the technical aspects to being able to identify key things to look for in any given inspection to point mm-hmm. you in the right direction of right. what you need to look right. for. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I so think he, he was, is an excellent choice. Yeah. And Phil is obviously a friend of mine and we were coworkers at OSHA, the Omaha office as well. And um, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Um, you know, Phil and I, I was probably the compliance assistance specialist at the time Phil came to the office as a field hygienist or a compliance officer. And so we didn't do a lot of inspections together, but we always interacted and, you know, he sat in the back corner by my office in the back corner. And so we, we talked quite a bit and back there with Jimmy Lightfoot and, um, as you recall, and, uh, we used to talk a lot about industrial hygiene and he is an incredibly bright guy. I'm always impressed by Phil and, you know, he, he enjoys uh, more than probably anyone I know. He, he makes life and, and, and um, OSHA enjoyable to the extent that's possible. But he, ta- <laughs> yeah. but he, but he takes his, his craft very seriously and he's very good at it. And um, I've learned a great deal from Phil as well. I think he's a great choice. I'm going to put together a, a wall of fame of mentors or something at some point on my website. And Phil will be up there at the top because I would agree that uh, you and I both benefited from having worked with Phil for those years. So 
he was a he was a very patient mentor, and he <laughs> is so answer. knowledgeable. Yes, he uh, is. I could ask him a, a number of questions, and he he always had the answer. Of course, yeah. he was always a, a little bit amused about the process I was working <laughs> right, through, right. which uh, goes with the territory. Well, he was just amused uh, at the he, fact that you were actually trying to solve some of these problems. Usually, you know, <laughs> Phil and I were at the point where like, ah, just get it done and get over with it. But you were always so intellectually curious about industrial hygiene. You know, you were re- you really wanted to understand it. And uh, Phil and I were so unfamiliar with that approach, you know, <laughs> having both been trained by Burmeister, you know, so. Uh, well, that's the hazard. <laughs> exactly. Just get to Don't the point. Don't worry about all the technical part. Just that's, that's right. the hazard. That's right. <laughs> well, um, it is, we're running up on the end of our time. It is so great to see you. I, we miss you. Um, it's hopefully, nice to see a face. Yeah, no doubt, <laughs> nice I'm sure. Face, right, right. Yeah. If, if it is my face, I, you know, I understand that you've been in quarantine for six weeks, so seeing me is probably uh, better than nothing. So I, I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> it's great to see you. We're very proud of you, and you've done fantastic. Keep up the good work. Um, I hope we get to see you in Omaha here sometime. Any plans to come back to the area anytime soon, or? I hope to while. come back this summer. Oh, I think that, it'll probably be the safest time to safest yeah, time to travel. That'd be terrific. So It'd be good we'll to be see having you. lunch then. Awesome. That sounds good. Well, thanks for joining me today. Um, it's been an, a very special day for me. And uh, keep up the good work. I hope things, um, you know, start to turn the corner out in uh, things. I yes, things are uh, things are going as well as they can i think honestly i think things are really the hospitals are managing very well and things are looking better at uh at this juncture good so i'm cautiously optimistic i don't think we're through all of it but uh certainly optimistic about this period of time yeah well they are they are certainly fortunate to have you out there Corey. um have a great weekend it's good to see you and we'll talk soon hopefully yes sounds good take care of yourself a Parkville Media Production.